0: Welcome to The Hype Within, exploring journeys of authentic leadership and growth. On the show, tech leaders will share their stories of developing their leadership skills and challenges they faced along the way. You'll learn about their approaches to self-reflection and personal growth, and how they've been able to build a foundation of authenticity that has propelled them to success. I'm your host, Hana Jakover, B2B marketing leader turned leadership and executive coach. Are you ready to get hyped up? Let's dive in. Hey, leaders. I'm here with Lauren McCormick, and she is the vice president of Revenue Pulse. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lauren. I'm so happy that you're on the show. We've been connected for a while now, and I'll tell the story about how you ended up here on the show shortly, but I'm just amped to have you, so thank you for coming. Likewise,
1: I am so inspired by you on The Daily, and it's a true pleasure to get the chance just to sit down and chat. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. Okay,
0: so why don't you tell everybody a little bit about who you are and maybe talk about
1: your leadership journey as an introduction? Sure sounds good. So I, as you mentioned, am the vice president at Revenue Pulse. We do marketing and revenue ops consultative services for everything from startups on up to the fortune 100 and the journey for me was kind of long and storied i started off in journalism got into ad sales and then ended up getting into digital uh via direct response in that crazy industry and then one fine day I was tapped by a VP at my husband's tech company in the Chicago suburbs to come on board with this crazy new tool called Marketo and this weird new software called Salesforce to come on board and try and implement this stuff at a company where marketing was doing the annual company picnic and pictures with the Easter Bunny and Donut Cart Fridays. And I started drinking Maria Bergolino's Kool-Aid around having a seat at the revenue table. And we transformed the org, transformed marketing. And shortly thereafter, I had a seat up in the boardroom next to the the CEO and founder doing kind of forecasting and uh, early stage rev ops and demand gen. It was amazing. And this was like 2011. And uh, then in 2013, got the tap from one of the first consultative agencies out of Danville, California, to, to, hey, do you want to spread this evangelism for marketing automation and what it can do for people and companies and careers? Do you want to spread this across a wider portfolio of companies? And the long and the short of it was absolutely, that sounds like uh, an amazing mission. And nothing makes me happier now than seeing The people that I've interacted with over the years grow and flourish and expand their technical prowess and pass the torch along to the next generation of marketers that have a seat at the revenue table. So the journey for management, it started off kind of with being given this technology to own and as the power of the technology unfolded, it was my singular and distinctive honor to be able to extend that power and that capability to other people on my team that were interested in it it sort of spread like wildfire. And then after that, consulting in its own right is is a bit like a, being the Sherpa that helps people climb the the mountain. If you've gone up at once, you know where the spots are that are dangerous, where you can fall, where the best places are to camp, the gear you need to bring. And I've been able to help support success in that fashion in regard for a while. And I've kind of fluctuated back and forth between Bay Area Tech and Consultative Life, you know, sometimes I like the singular mission. Sometimes I like the, uh, the diversified portfolio of different logos and industries and verticals. But I think at the heart of it all has just been the notion of helping people build fruitful careers and stable, predictable revenue for their organizations. I love that. And I love that you stated your purpose.
0: At the end of it, I always ask people about their purpose and like, why do you do what you do? And sometimes we don't stop and think about it. So
1: it's powerful that you could just hear (laughs) this. Thank you. Thank you. I'm inspired by the people. It's like a feedback loop of inspiration. If you can kind of plant a seed of excitement and enthusiasm, it's, it comes back to you tenfold. Totally
0: agree. And I also spent some time, well, most of my career agency side and It really is. It's just such a different beast when you are both in a, I would say, more technical leadership role. Yeah, and also you do have to showcase a lot of those leadership skills. But you're not like quote unquote their leader. They are different organizations, but you have to bring your leadership not only to your team at the agency or consultancy you're working at, but also to all of your clients. And I think that it for me, at least personally, it propelled my
1: leadership journey to be able to see leadership through both of those. Totally. Totally. It's a cross-training. So you get to be exposed to so many different organizational cultures, so many different organizational chart structures, so many different missions, so many different levels of satisfaction. Mm -hmm. To be honest, you can see, you know, you have to pivot quickly sometimes if you're in a situation where it's less than optimal and you're pivoting you're like oh good it's the, it's the company where everyone's excited to work on this project instead of everyone's dreading the circumstances but i mean from every experience and every ex- exposure and every interaction is a lesson if you take it right even the negative ones you. and i think at the heart of it is just the notion of wanting to help to drive other people's goals to give them Peace of mind and security. Like that servant kind of leader mentality, I think definitely applies in consultative work. It's it's you. not really about your project. The project is for them. Either. Yeah. And it's aligned with their goals. And that's when I think you make the the long term relationships work.
0: Absolutely. Oh my gosh. And I always used to answer that question, like, why do you do what you do? And when I was agency side, it was watching somebody take something that we have given them, you know, some yes. some knowledge, some information, some technology, yeah. and they make it their own completely. completely. And then you get to watch them like present to their stakeholders yeah. and they just own it. And I mean, I think it's one of the most fulfilling experiences that I've had in my career. And one of the most challenging too, because you really have to guide them like you said you're that Sherpa you have to give them the tools to kind of figure it out on their own and own it while also still executing and making
1: things technically work (laughs) totally it's it's like teaching someone how to swim you can talk in theory and you can tell them what the water feels like when it's in your hands and behind your feet but at some point you have to help them in the pool they have to feel the water and they have to get the experience. And sometimes it's scary. Sometimes it's harrowing. And sometimes they have to, maybe their learning style or their particular set of experiences lead them to learn best from <laughs> failing forward and failing fast. And that's hard to watch sometimes. Mm-hmm. But if you can be the the cautionary tale and you can maybe prevent and speed up some of the learnings with some of the other situations you've been exposed to, what a gift to be able to share across so many different lenses and to add perspective as somebody's learning something new that maybe is scary. To be that guidance, that peace of mind—it's an honor. And uh, I love it when I see people starting to train other people that I've trained, or winning awards, or growing their career. Like, what a not only just the success with like kind of the the knowledge or the 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 skills or the the technology, but just seeing. Them get the spark to teach others is so cool. Yeah, totally agree. What is your leadership style? So, I mean, it's player coach and servant leader kind of hybrid. I like to be invested and involved and hands-on so that I can help drive innovation and so that I can put the beta tested feature functionality from maybe the newest release of a technology that could deliver a competitive edge to our team or our clients or direct reports. I like to be on the bleeding edge, which means I have to stay in platform. I have to stay close to the platform vendors and I have to actively be building or else it gets rusty. But also from a a team standpoint and a leadership standpoint, that player coach notion, standing side by side in the engagements, in the projects, you have to be on the same field if you're understanding the game, right? You have to be just as invested in what's happening so that you can leverage talent and you can foster growth and so that you can remove obstacles for your crew, right? Mm-hmm. So you got to be out there and got to be on the field and you got to have your head in the game.
0: Yeah. And especially in the consulting world, you have to be in the tools. You have to know what's coming. You have to be on the cusp of innovation and really You know, like you said, get in there and get your hands dirty because that's part of your job to offer that to both your team
1: and to clients. Yeah. And it's their game though. At the end of the day, like I think that's the, it's important, you know, the player coach has to know when to step back and shine that spotlight directly and exclusively on the players on the field and let them celebrate the wins and stand and clap from the dugout. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, there's so much from baseball that you can teach in life. I guess that's why I was a, a little league manager for so, so many years. But yeah, yeah, definitely inspired by a lot of the learnings from like Positive Coaching Alliance and how that can kind of be a hybrid with some of my B-School experience and then some of my practical applications in real life kind of synergized to really kind of, I think, align with those methodologies. Mm, those are great
0: influences, for leadership, we we can always take so many sports references, particularly baseball, and apply it to leadership and just learning about the game and learning about coaching the game. Yeah. Um, I find it inspiring that you coach little league. <laughs> That's something I would never do, but I love that you.
1: Oh, did that for so long. Thank you. I grew up with baseball, and it was um, fun to kind of be the unexpected person demographically in the the managerial role. You know, I'd have my clipboard and my lineup and people were like, are you doing the treats after the game? <laughs> no, not actually, but thank you. It was fun though, because I think Little League is sport is becoming much more inclusive now. And it's been, it was so inspiring to see those little faces. And I think uh, teaching lessons like running hard to first base, even if you know you're out, mm. you still run hard because that's what we're here to do is to try our best. And Losing is just as important as winning and the lessons you learn from losing and losing with grace and dignity. So pivotal, I think. And hopefully that'll influence some of the people that I was able to coach later in life and in their professional circumstances. Oh, I'm sure.
0: I'm sure it will. I'm sure it already has if they're old enough. But
1: <laughs> now that I run into them and they're like old enough to like work at the restaurants they go to and stuff and they co opt me and I can kind of like barely recognize me and they're like, I still have our picture from that season that we played as the Blue Jays up on my fridge. And oh, that's so sweet. That's awesome. You know, it's cool to be able to, to help influence their lives in some small way. Yeah. What else influences you in your leadership journey? Well, for goodness sake, you, my friend. And the colleagues that I've been fortunate enough to cultivate over the years are a constant source of inspiration. Like, I feel so fortunate to have crossed paths with so many brilliant people. And each of them kind of has left a little glimmer of inspo, I think, in my heart and mind. And then there they all are collected on LinkedIn, which is so super cool. And new ones kind of cross my path on the daily. And different professional groups have been super helpful. The Marketo Engaged Champions talk about a collective, a hive mind, a brain trust, And uh, just a a good stand-up crew of of awesome human beings to be able to collab with over the the course of the pandemic. Women in Revenue, what a tremendous group of, of humans. But I find new stuff to be inspired by on the daily. And it's so cool that we live in such an era that's accessible and immersive. And if you if you like somebody's line of thought and their philosophies, you can just kind of double click and absorb it all, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. lots of different influences, yourself included, but in a tremendous thought leadership out there these days on uh, our social networks. Well, I'm honored to make the list and um, thank you. And
0: I appreciate always the Women in Revenue Network and yeah, such an amazing community. So- Lauren had posted on LinkedIn and I was, I was scrolling it. I stopped because I have read this book. I've seen her speak and I like reading Lauren's stuff. And so I stopped and she was kind of just putting a question out there. Like, Hey, has anybody read radical candor by Kim Scott here? I have it right here. Let's jam on it. It was really just an open question, which AI loved. And I hopped in her comments and was like, you should come on my podcast and let's talk about it. Let's talk about the book. Let's talk about some of the concepts and your leadership journey and how they're all meshed together. So that's what we're going to do. And I love it. Me too.
1: I was thrilled that day when you dropped that comment. I was like, I would be delighted, you know? And so I started reading it like a way faster clip and like with these big conversational, like objectives in mind. I'm so excited. I know you have so many good shares too. All we're missing is our friend Drew. Dan, <laughs> I him a shout out. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I was wondering when we were going to give him the shout out because, yeah, I think uh, we should have maybe taken him up on the offer to be the the background pipe dancer in a window in the corner. I, I was intrigued by that offer. I feel like that could be its own format on social media. I agree. When I worked with Jira at Mankudu, we did a presentation
0: together and I took little clips of our headshots and like I had us animated it, it was so
1: nerdy. But maybe I'll relive, line up. yeah maybe I'll relive that moment and put him in the video somewhere. <laughs> I'm all in for that. And yeah he he and I worked together at Demange and International. What a what a singularly inspiring human being on his own. Talk about people in your network that inspire you. She's yeah, definitely on that list. A big shout out to True. Yeah, nice working mine, with too. mine too. Mine too. Okay, so Radical Candor
0: by Kim Scott. I know a lot of people out there have read that book. It's yeah. has some really great concepts. Very well known, I think those concepts within I think within tech industry because she's really references and has come from that industry itself, yeah. but probably in other industries as well. What are some of the biggest
1: takeaways for you from the book? So The ruinous empathy category and the dichotomy between that and radical candor is something that I think I see so many leaders, especially new leaders, trying to find a balance with. Like It's human instinct to want to be liked, Mm -hmm. but if all you do is pursue the approval and consistently only deliver positive reinforcement to your crew... How are you going to grow? And I don't know that there was a framework for how to think about the fact that being the most like boss in the room might be bad for your company. Mm -hmm. You might be doing the entire organization a disservice because you're allowing for the status quo to dominate. And it kind of blew my mind to think about the fact that empathy, because I consider myself a a high empathy human, how it could be ruinous. and like balancing that dichotomy against the radical nature of candor. And of course, she's quick to start by saying, this is not a license to be a jerk. Like radical candor isn't about just being this brash, harsh, blatant force of nature in every meeting where you just kind of pop off at people. But the fact that like, honest, transparent communication is vital, is so true. Like, I think about college courses and healthy debates, or I think about spirited conversations with some of my friends that like to argue one side and then pivot and argue the other. Like, I had those relationships since I was little. Why do we check those at the door in our workplace, right? Some of us, like, don't bring that vibe where we're willing to argue somebody else's side, In the interest of pursuing the best decision possible, some of us just want to keep the peace, but is the peace something we can keep in 2023? Yeah,
0: that's a great question, I think, for everybody listening. And I also think, too, the way we are socialized when we're younger has so much to do with it. I know that I have had to go, I used to be a big people pleaser, huge people pleaser. Yeah. It ruins my life. (laughs) I am not so much anymore. It was a mask for me. And I thought that I was bringing so much to the table by just like getting along with people and helping other people get along and doing what people wanted me to do. When in reality, it wasn't a good position to be in for anybody else, nor myself or my personal growth. I mean, there's other things that go along with why I was a people pleaser one being I'm neurodivergent we have a tendency to do this but I think that there is something to be said of just the way that we are socialized when we're younger is with this expectation to be good and be quiet or you know don't make too much noise don't make too many waves and to just kind of bend to that expectation and we bring that into adulthood I think really silently. And I think we bring a lot of shame and a
1: lot of guilt and grief with it. I think you're right. And I think so many people struggle, neurotypical and neurodivergent alike, with right-sizing themselves. Mm -hmm. Am I too big? Am I too small? Am I too much? Am I not enough? Am I talking too much? I didn't say anything that whole meeting. And those voices, the calories that we expend upon self-doubt and shame and internalizing this brain and these questions that we all have. I mean, I think it's interesting when you think about Kim's notion of bringing your whole self to work. Is that ever really possible? I mean, people are so reticent. It's a different persona for so many in the workplace than it is in social environments. And it's when she makes the reference, I think it's super interesting, when she makes the reference to having some feedback that you need to provide to a teammate and not wanting to deliver negative feedback because it feels gross and it's tense. And so maybe we schedule a meeting three weeks out and we don't say the thing in the moment. Would you ever, with your spouse, significant other partner, friend, even acquaintance, family member, schedule a meeting three weeks out to wait to tell them something important that you were thinking about your interactions. I mean, I hope not. Not eat. (laughs) Right. But we do that in the workplace. And I think I also do, on the other side of that spectrum, think about the fact that she mentioned a tweet where somebody said, tried radical candor, got fired. (laughs) (laughs) So it's interesting culturally when she's talking about like international cultures and how some, I think Bay Area tech was always up for a healthy debate and a spirited kicking of a concept around until we felt like it was tumbled through the rock tumbler and ready to come out polished and shiny. But I don't know that everybody has an appetite or an aptitude or a comfort zone that involves rock tumbling to kind of steal the the metaphor that she uses in the book. So it's definitely, I think, that radical candor is awesome and having transparency and clear feedback and refining as a manager for clarity around how that feedback is, is conveyed and transmitted for yourself first and then for your team secondarily is super important. But it's interesting to me that this is not mm-hmm. a one-size-fits-all thing. You know, it's definitely through a very singular lens, and I don't know that all all walks of life will find this to be as easy as others, as natural as others, as feasible and realistic as others. Um, so I'm interested to read her follow-up on inclusion in the workplace and how, how the two might go together.
0: Yeah, yeah. And we were having this conversation earlier yes. where... I just think that there's so many ways to do something and perception is everything as well in a world where if you show up in front of others, you're bound to be perceived totally in a certain way. And everyone also is going to perceive you differently. And I mean, I was telling Lauren, I've found myself in the both the ruinous empathy box quadrant and the obnoxious aggression quadrant. And I could say part of it is my personality. I could also say it's because I'm neurodivergent. There's just so many reasons why people show up that way. And I so I think it's really about maintaining that curiosity about yourself as well as the mm-hmm. others. Because, yeah, that perception, it can be scary, especially being a neurodivergent person where you may not really be aware of a lot of those things. There's totally just small things that you... Are missing when it's social cues or just the way that you sound. Like I had always been perceived as a very kind, but tough, but fair leader. And I know that I had gotten in situations where I gave very direct feedback. And to some, that would have come off as, wow, like that was really intense. And as a result of that, just being also neurodivergent and not having a lot of other people know that, I then went and swung completely to the other side of this because of the feedback that I got. You know, you're too intense. You're too passionate. You're too much. You got to tone it down. This is where I learned to like put exclamations and smiley faces and, oh, and everything and everything else as, as smile. And so I feel like sometimes it almost
1: exacerbated the amount of masking that I was already doing (laughs) and it kind of undermines the superpowers because along, and I totally understand I come from a fully neurodivergent home and it's interesting the lessons that I need to learn and operationalize to help my kids even, you know, and my spouse and it's and myself, but I totally have, have lived the same experience and moving to the other side of the spectrum compromises some of that depth of, of special interest, the passion, the truth, the insight, it dampens the benefits, I think, of neurodivergence to have to kind of be other. And what I thought was really cool, and I'm hoping that this is expounded upon Warren Kim's sequel, is the notion that we all tend to make these sweeping generalizations about people if we're not super careful about it, like, oh... She's a jerk. No, she said something that I perceived as brisk, but it may have context. Maybe there's a a dynamic there where grace and and a little latitude and understanding for diversity and inclusion are super important, right? I tell my kids this all the time when they start their sentences with, they never, those sweeping generalizations about the person are super destructive Mm -hmm. and pursuing constructive thoughts around the idea, the situation, the project so important not to fall back into that labelist sort of mentality where it's like an ad hominem instead of constructive Mm -hmm. and contributing to the goals of the the greater good. I think that's where the too much and the not enough labels come from. Not always too much. You're never not always enough.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And what does that even mean? You know, especially being a coach when we're in sessions and somebody will say something, Like, I'm not a leader, or these statements, what does that mean to you? How are you defining that?
1: And who's in charge of the ultimate definition of too much? That's really insightful. And I think when in the book she talks about rock stars and superstars and some people that I think about how the superstars are perceived sometimes is clawing their way to the top and overzealous and way too dynamic. Well, that's the catalyst for innovation right there. And they're just, they have a hunger, but they're not gratified by consistency. Whereas the rock stars really enjoy delivering a consistent and awesome level um, and performing consistent and awesome tasks. And the fact that she identifies that not everybody is always one or the other Mm-hmm. You know, it's a spectrum and that you can be one at one season in your career in life and you can shift to another depending on your circumstances or where you're at in professionally and personally. And I think right-sizing yourself, trying to squish yourself smaller or make yourself bigger, I don't know. I feel like there's authenticity and just being allowed to be who you are and letting the best of that shine forward and having there be some latitude and understanding around it. Just being who you are. And
0: um, I like what you said, too, about not being bigger or smaller. And then I also always experiment with just owning your space. Yeah. No matter what size, in what season you are in, just taking time to own your space and how you can have influence through that, I think is really important, no matter the size.
1: I love that. If you think about the ease that you bring to a situation when you're comfortable in your own space, when you're comfortable in your own dominion and with who you are and what you do and how you do it. continuing to learn, not getting stuck in your ways, but being at ease with your unique you, how liberating that is for others that are watching that are maybe trying to find their own space and how empowering it is for people that are yet to find a comfort and a peace and a sense of belonging in their personal and professional lives. If you can live it and you can walk the walk, that other people would feel liberated to pursue that same, that same mm-hmm. agenda. And I dig that. There's so much that
0: comes from literally just being yourself. Great. Great. It takes me back to your initial comment and what Kim writes about bringing your whole self to work. And I love talking about this. There's a great article uh, out there. I'm going to have to link it in the show notes because I forget what it's called and who it's by. It talks about like how dangerous that concept actually is for some people. Agreed. And I like to think of the difference of authenticity and bringing your full whole self. You know, there's a big difference there. Like, I see myself as very authentic. I try to bring a lot of myself, but... I can't bring my whole self. It's not safe for me to bring my whole self in a lot of situations, whether it be because I'm neurodivergent or whether it be because I'm a person of color, whether it be because I'm a woman. There are situations where bringing my whole self is not an option. It's not an option. And I do it out of the safety for myself and survival. But being authentic, I can do that. I can do that without bringing everything about myself. You know, I can be real. I I can have that empathy, that ability to reflect and say what I mean and mean what I say. And I think that kind of encompasses the being authentic versus bringing your whole self.
1: Very well said. And I look forward to a day where hopefully future generations continue to let people bring ever more authentic pieces of their person to the table.
0: Yeah, yeah. So one thing in this book, we talked about this too, or you mentioned, great concepts. The concepts are, you can just kind of go down rabbit holes with them. Yeah. When you put it into practice, though, I feel like some people, they don't want to have these conversations. Totally right. It's uncomfortable to change your communication style, be radical in your candor, and bring all of that to the table. I'm curious for you and moving through your leadership journey, how do you handle the
1: discomfort that comes with those difficult conversations? So it's interesting. I think personally and professionally, I've been for the majority of my career in places where radical candor was in the water cooler and where we were ready to go in and debate, especially big decisions pretty exhaustively, but we walked away Thickest as is, is these tight friends and and with the understanding that it was all in the interest of the best path forward for the company or for the project, whatever the topic might have been. But then I've also been in situations where it's not super encouraged to uh, stir the pot, to make waves, even in small ways, made people feel threatened or judged or intimidated and heaven knows I don't ever want people to feel uneasy. And then I pick up this book and what does it tell me? The best thing for the company is to feel a little bit uneasy. But that doesn't mean you have to inflict it on others. I think the most insightful thing Kim says is it should start with you. It's that Michael Jackson man in the mirror moment where you're like, okay, if you want to start practicing radical candor, ask people for their feedback about you. Mm -hmm. Start with yourself. And it will make them uncomfortable, but I think she gives a lot of good sentence starters, like Sheryl Sandberg kind of concept moments where maybe not with her feedback about saying um too much and and sounding unprofessional, but I think it's interesting to think that you can approach somebody. And I think, you know, knowing the relationship and starting perhaps with the right casting crew is vital, but approaching somebody and saying, what can I do or not do to make your job easier? How could I have handled our conversation so that you walked away with better insight. If uh, you had this project to do over again, how could I be a better contributor? Starting off, I think you can right-size your perspective, and I think you need to honor the personality type of the person you're approaching. Yeah. And that's so much of what I'm hoping I see in the follow-up book is is how to right-size this for including lots of different people and lots of different backgrounds, Mm -hmm. whether it be based on neuro type or whether it's based on formographics, demographics, even maybe just personality types or DE and I. like I think there are ways to understand and have empathy without it being ruinous as you approach radical candor.
0: Yeah. And there's so many tools out there too from a communication standpoint. I'm a huge yeah. fan of nonviolent communication. Yeah. I know. Yeah, it's a good one. I also use something called the complete communication wheel, which Ooh. is similar to nonviolent communication. But it the difference is that it really relies on the concept of data first. And I think having those frameworks or tools like that, like nonviolent communication, nonviolent communication is nice because it's easy to remember, but yeah, like you can pull it out and adapt it to yeah. the situation and the person. But it's still going to allow you to effectively communicate your needs and your emotions and your requests and all of those things that will then become a fruitful conversation and a path forward, no matter who you're talking to. It's just a great way to avoid the finger pointing and judgments and where. If you're dealing with somebody who's not like
1: you, that's a really dangerous place to be in. I agreed, agreed. But I think we have to make space at every table for a dialogue. And I think to her point in the end of the book, this is establishing these dialogues and getting conversations out and in the open, even if you know they're hard, it's vital, and it's the only way forward. It's the only way forward is to establish public and personal dialogues and communications and, and roads forward. Well, I liked your, the Michael Jackson reference, The Man in the Mirror.
0: And it starts with you. It really yeah. doesn't start with you. many people don't know who they are. It's wild to me that so many people are so distant from themselves, like their true selves and their body and their emotions. I think that there's so much to be said about doing that work. And in this book, I mean, Kim talks a lot about showing up for yourself too. And she says, you can't give a damn about others if you don't take care of yourself, which I wholeheartedly believe. I'm curious for you, especially with the fact knowing that you live in a fully neurodivergent household because... We got to exchange notes on that sometime because I do too. But what is your recipe to stay centered?
1: It's so multifaceted and it's such a journey. And it's, I mean, continuing education, just like it, it is from, from any vantage point. I think I was telling my my sophomore in high school about the fact that grownups are still figuring it out too. As a parent, I'm still learning too. I'm learning every day. And I think being open to learning how to take care of yourself and not thinking That it's a destination, but it's a journey has been super important for me. And it's little by little, step by step, you know, whether it be finding folate or getting my adrenals started, getting my hormones balanced as a woman, you know, looking at the progesterone and seeing if it's up against the cortisol in a, in a, in a meaningful way that establishes for balance, but then also activity. Like for those not to sound like it's available to everyone, but for me personally, I enjoy being active, and dance, and yoga, and Pilates. I like a lot of breath work. I think that's been huge. But just thinking about your nervous system as you would any other system in your body. It needs care, it needs maintenance, it needs love, it needs exercise. And tending to it is uh, finding those hacks that help you retrain it, especially if you've been in the crucible of high-stress environments and work before. It takes a physical Toll. It can unleash a cascade of illness that isn't just stress. And I think it's super important to find your way, find what works for you, and to continue to expand on that journey. And, and whether it's ashwagandha and L-theanine, whether it's cold water therapy, whenever you find that journaling, even if you're not into all the the interesting neural hacks, there's there's so many different ways. Even just. Taking time for lunch for some people. Like, I thought it was interesting when she talked about blocking out two hours of think time and that Fortune 100 CEOs would turn down the president when he approached during that think time that two-hour block was sacred. I know not many of us can get away with that. But I mean, you can at least give yourself 20 minutes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Baby steps. When
0: I worked at Kudu that That was one of the things I noticed about Francis and Sam, the founders. I'm having Sam on the show soon. I'm so excited to talk to him. But it was my first experience at a startup with founders that had those boundaries for themselves. I went and I looked at Sam's calendar and I'm like, what the hell? (laughs) I could not fit in because he, he blocks out his focus time. He blocks out his lunch. He blocks out so many things that allow him to just... Put his heads down and focus or spend time on what he needs to be doing and it's like he's pretty ruthless about it too there were days where he was like i'm not on zoom today i'm not on slack today i'm going dark today it's like a deep work day for me uh, awesome. and i think it's important for us to be able to have the time and the space to identify what those needs are for each individual because it's it's always going to be different but having that time and space just to figure it out i think is critical
1: Totally. And like you set the example, you set the cadence. And I know a lot of us are exploring the notion of this still today, but I'm seeing a lot more kind of global wellness days. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing a lot more attention around the subject, but it doesn't have to be a full-on corporate movement. People are watching leaders. And when you take a day of PTO and you make five exceptions for why you're going to be on the clock the whole time, your team notices. Just like you see the focus time from your leaders, you see people taking lunch for heaven's sake, and it creates a safe place for other people to find their own balance. And and I don't know, it might be uncomfortable just like radical candor to lean into radical care, but what choice do we have, right? What are the alternatives?
0: Yeah, well, the alternative is to live a life with like a nervous system that is very, very angry at you. I'm so happy you brought that up because it's one thing I think after discovering I was neurodivergent, it helped me take back control of my life. Totally. Learning about my nervous system, regulating my nervous system, learning about what burnout does to your body. We don't talk about these things at work. And you're right, it has these cascading effects where it will take literal years off of your life. And this happens naturally, but you speed it up. The longer that you sit in burnout, you speed it up. And learning about those systems and how to control and regulate all of that is so powerful, so underrated too.
1: Absolutely, and it's remarkable the small steps you can take, what a big difference they make. Mm-hmm. And it's um, not even just about the lifespan length, but also the quality. You don't want to open the door for damaged organs, and it's important to protect your nervous system just as much as you would your heart health or your digestive system. It's, in fact, perhaps more so because your nervous system regulates all those things, and you'll you'll see cascades in every aspect. It becomes systemic. Yep, absolutely. Okay, I want to shift gears a little bit
0: and. You had just posted a poll on LinkedIn. We're going to talk about AI now. Um,
1: You had just posted a poll on LinkedIn. Do you remember what it was? Yeah, it was like a vibe check because like, we're talking about it a lot at Revenue Pulse, which is super exciting and just uh, action philosophical, but also getting into how we can be that sharper that helps people with this whole new frontier. It's not really new, it's here. I love it when people talk about tech like that's in the future, that's already in the present. But I think it was, you know, are you... Terrified or thrilled, but yeah, are you using it? Are you terrified by it? Or are you both? Right? And I think uh, it's interesting to see the responses that I'm getting. And I kind of figured the sorting hat would land. Some of the people replied to me in the camps, they are. But it's such an interesting game changer. And I know we've been, especially as marketers, exposed to so many hype words, so many buzzwords. Oh, big data, ABM, growth hacker, PLG, all this stuff, you know, but... I think we've yet to see something that stood to be like an industrial revolution or a renaissance of this magnitude. And I just kind of wanted to vibe check the community. Like, I know we're all thinking that we should be in the loop and invested, but how many people are grabbing it thrilled, stoked, and like jumping out of the plane in full skydive mode to adopt? And how many people are peeking out of the, the door of the plane saying, Okay, this is making me crazy. And I think socially responsible humans for a while now have been, like I had a peer at Neo4j, uh, Dr. Amy Hodler, what a wonderful and awesome human being. And she, I mean, as early as like the latter part of the last decade was advocating for ethical and sustainable AI. So lots of people have been talking around the importance. And I think the last thing we wanna do is wait for a legislature. We saw how that went with Zuckerberg on the Hill, where the Congress was asking the questions that were completely baffling to anybody in tech. But it's it's certainly a bold new horizon. And for, I, for one, am intrigued to the point where I'm scrolling through content when I should be sleeping at night. <laughs> I'm going to have to put fences around the special interest here, but um, it's so such a pivotal time. I think it's like Innovation and obsolescence have never been such clear paths, mm-hmm. at least in my estimation. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of the early days as like marketing automation and CRM. Mm-hmm. It's a game changer, I think. But I'm curious to hear what others think. Curious to hear yeah. what you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I was in the
0: camp of when I took your poll, I'm using it daily and yeah. I'm terrified.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, yeah, I it.
0: Yeah, and because I am terrified around some of the ethical issues and just some of the boundaries that it's too late. Like, it's too late. like people have been warning about this for years and years, red flags for so many years on that piece. But, but yeah, it's very powerful. You know, we'll see. And at the same time, I'm just I'm so interested in how I can leverage it. I use it both personally, like my son is having a sonic themed birthday party this Saturday. Yeah. and uh, you know, was, five, I know he's 25 very emotional but I had chat GPT create sonic themed games that I can create for the kids on Saturday
1: I <laughs> do it so much can I come I want to come that'd be amazing but uh, yeah. that's so cool and like the applications are really kind of it's wild it's like an it's people equivocate with the the, the dawn of search engines only the much more next gen and I think that's Totally an interesting uh, comparison. Just was kicking around Bard for the first time. And it's neat seeing the Google spin on things. But it's even cooler, I think, having having worked at Neo and alongside of, of people that were thinking about interconnectivity and data in such radical and innovative ways. We had a whole committee for graphs for good. To look at the ways that this kind of technology can combat human trafficking, can fight money laundering, can look at political corruption. I mean, the applications, there's lots of bad actors and sinister players, I think. But it'll be like cybersecurity. It'll be like getting out AI security, get out in front of these bad actors will become an industry. But the, the hyper-personalization of Marketing, like you know how retargeting was creepy at first? Mm -hmm. Like when you look at like some kind of product and all of a sudden like it's like floating and you're like, excuse me, really? A hyper specific Sonic the Hedgehog tablecloth that I was looking at. (laughs) Where'd you come from? I think there's something to be said for kind of the way that we've been cobbling recommendation engines and personalization together, kind of in a in a rudimentary duct tape sort of scenario, and the way that like we're going to be able to elegantly and seamlessly deliver information and personalization at scale is just super, super cool. It's got me getting out of bed pretty excited in the morning these days. Yeah, me too. You can outsource so much and from
0: yeah. lens, a leadership lens, yeah. kind of personal development lens, what can I outsource to chat GPT that allows me to be with the humans, be present with them, and give them what they really need and actually focus on that. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And I feel like, especially with our that. marketing roles in tech, we are so focused on doing, executing, putting everything out there, and less sometimes focused on leadership and totally. developing people, which is so critical. So I always think of it through that lens of, you can outsource and focus on the things that really, really matter and not only focus on them, but be present to those decisions and be present to those moments and AI can help us do that.
1: How inspiring that you would, of course, you would take it to the the level of how we can level up as authentic human beings in the workplace, like to remove some of the more banal tasks, some of the more tedious based kind of activities that that pull us away. I mean, and I think in the book, it's interesting, she talks about how leadership for some people that are kind of pushed into the, the leadership role because they're high performers, but maybe not necessarily formally trained as leaders. And this allows latitude if we're able to remove some of the more repetitive casts. This gives it creates the space for people to become mm-hmm. the leaders that they always wanted to be and to refine the art and the craft. I dig that. Yeah. I dig that. Yeah, I'm into it. I'm ready. Okay. In closing, for the
0: emerging executives, the emerging leaders out there that are listening, What resources, whether they be more tangible resources or experiences or exercises, what would you recommend to help them on their journey
1: and enhance their personal and professional growth? Find your people, find a community, find your brain trust, your hive mind, your humans that you can go to when you have questions, that you can bounce ideas off of, that you can start amazing dialogues with, that you can support too, because it feels awful good to pay those people back in kind. when. They're able to help you out and it's a reciprocal kind of relationship. Also find a mentor. Don't be afraid. Go out there. Find somebody that inspires you that's at the the kind of career apex that you envision and reach out to them. I mean, sometimes these people don't even realize that others are watching or that they might be a source of inspiration, but ask for a little time. Bend their ear, get their thoughts, but then also find a mentee because you'll learn so much about where you're at and what you need to do and how best to help others by by jumping into the water and swimming, kind of like I mentioned before. So if somebody approaches you for advice, offer a regular cadence of conversations, make it a dialogue and focus on that lens of, of how to support, but like not with kind of random acts of mentorship, but like maybe like curate, like some of the things that you might want to help with or you might identify as, as being able to facilitate the next steps in their journey. But definitely for me, it's always an exercise in allowing myself the space and the quiet to absorb from other people. Sometimes I think life gets so hectic that we feel like it's a constant rush to try and become the next version of ourselves. But I think sometimes just sitting with who you are today, you know, to, that time is, is just as important as trying to level up to the next spot. Oh, that's really powerful. Thank you so much for
0: sharing all of your wisdom and your story Likewise. and just jamming out with me on AI and Kim Scott. It's, it's like, I'm obs- I'm just
1: perma-smile. <laughs> Likewise, I'm going to be delighted for the rest of the day and you're on an an cube. And thank you for everything you give to this community. Likewise. Thank you too, Lauren.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. I hope you walk away with something empowering that you can take into your own leadership journey. Are you a high-performing executive looking to take your career to the next level? Or maybe you're an emerging leader who wants to develop the skills you need to advance in your role and show up authentically. Or maybe you're experiencing burnout and struggling to find a better work-life balance. Whatever your situation is, one-on-one coaching can help you achieve your personal and professional goals. If you're interested in experiencing the power of coaching for yourself, head on over to hypehousecoaching.com backslash start coaching now, where you can set up a one-on-one leadership and executive coaching intro session for free. Remember, the only hype that really matters is the hype within.